As we continue this morning, working our way through the book of Hebrews here in this section of chapter 13, recalling last week in verse 7, you'll notice there again the call to the remembering of your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, considering the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 8 then says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what is taking place here in the first portion in 7-8 is the apostles giving this final exhortation regarding the integrity and purity of what is taught regarding the gospel and those who are doing the teaching of the gospel ought to reflect the purity and stability of Christ. He continues this morning beyond, however, a general principle that is, The purity of Christ and His stability ought to be manifest in the purity and stability of the teaching and the lives of those who are doing the teaching that is reflective of Christ. That is the general tone or the general principle at work in this final exhortation regarding the purity and stability of the gospel. This morning... He moves beyond this general principle to a very particular case, still regarding the purity and stability of the gospel. The particular case at work, beyond the general principle of purity and stability of what is taught, as well as with those who are doing the teaching in their manner of living. But verse 9, in this particular case, if you note it with me as I read verse 9, this particular case he is zeroing in on this morning regarding the purity and stability of the gospel among God's people. Verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Right? You see there, verse 7, a general exhortation. A general principle. Now he is zeroing in, doing one of these numbers, kind of this spiral effect. Zeroing in. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Remember your leaders. What's been taught regarding the gospel and imitate their way of living as they flesh it out of what the Spirit has done by faith. Don't be led away. For, here is His comment, zeroing in. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Right there is enough to pause for a very long time. Coming this morning. Gathering. I think of this text this week. Gathering of God's people. As we come together, we can say to one another... And in this moment, so appropriately, isn't it good for the heart to be strengthened by grace? He continues, not by foods. This comment regarding grace versus foods continues. These foods have not benefited those devoted to them. The particular case he is zeroing in here, 
as he says, grace versus foods is the issue of sacrificial feasts or festivals or ceremonial observances. And he is saying these foods, these dedications, ceremonial observances have not benefited those who observe them. Rather, here is this issue again and again of which we are or we are here in the, in the writing somewhere, or we are here in the New Testament, the law and the gospel. Recognizing their distinctions, their purposes in our lives. How susceptible, how susceptible are we to thinking the laws regu- provide strength and benefits to our soul? Such and such and such and such and prove out something, I will be energized in various forms of self-centered disciplines. Do nothing provides, strengthens, and enables. He has not now made an announcement of freedom and become unto you a new form of law. Festivals, dedications, self-inflicting wounds that somehow gain merit. How susceptible we are to the thought that we can receive benefit, add to God's commands, man's commands, competitions. That as we consider this particular case of not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to, we can go backward in our mind just for a few moments, dig up a little bit of its historical background, that read verse 10 and 11 next. Go back to Leviticus, front the context historically is dealing with sin offerings. Let me begin, I said in verse 10 and 11, let me begin back in 9. See today and forevermore. Not by foods, which have not prior to 70 AD, because there are priests on the ground functioning ceremonially, physically. And he says, they are not strengthened by foods, which have not benefited those. My priests, as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside of the camp. Purity and stability of the gospel among God's people, not by food. So we want to kind of piece together from Leviticus. Not by foods, they have no right to eat. Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Join with me, if you would, in chapter 6. And we're thinking, what is that? Right, exactly. Good, we're all on the same page. We're all 30. Every male among... 29, verse 30, sorry. I'm all over the place. I'm trying to read through my passages here. Verse 30, but in the holy place. There's a a prohibition there that's key. And then he is driving at that same setting in the first burned up with fire. Do not eat it. Go forward then with this in mind, this prohibition in mind. Comment in our text this morning. As we look forward to Grant 28. We continue on about atonement and sacrifice and the people of God throughout the rest of the Whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place. Right of what we just read. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes. Within the surrounding of the people of God, he performs these sacrifices as representative for the people. Deal with it. And that is to burn it. Now, because he left this realm of sanctification, he went to a place that is unsanctified. 
place that is outside the range of sanctity. He went outside the camp to perform this. An unholy, unsanctified place. Therefore, to come back into that which is holy and sanctified, he follows ceremonial cleansing according to the law. This is what we're dealing with historically. Jump back then to our text with these two thoughts in mind. This prohibition of eating the Day of Atonement or sin offering and this consideration of sanctification or uh, a sanctified location inside the camp and an unsanctified location that is outside of the camp. These themes, these thoughts come to bear upon us and what we have received and possess in Christ. I'll read the text one more time if you're back in Hebrews 13, just so we can be clear and begin our argument for the fulfillment of the day of atonement that we possess in Christ. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We, those strengthened by grace, we have or possess an altar from which those who serve the tent or the tabernacle, they have no right to eat. Now, when he says to us, beginning with our text now, we have an altar Speaking of an altar that we possess by grace, there are two moving parts. I know this morning you were thinking, I didn't eat my oatmeal. My brain is slow. Or, or perhaps you're saying, I didn't eat my Wheaties. Join with me. Pretend you did. We have one more thing. We just kind of, one more little hump we got to get over and then receive this text. When he says, we have an altar. And, and, the, and the idea is we have an altar by grace. Because that's how our, our hearts are being strengthened. We possess an altar. We're asking the question, what is an altar? How are we possessing us right now, Redeemer, the people of God? How is it that we have an altar? The question is immediately, what is the altar? What, what, what do you mean by that? There are two moving parts to the consideration of altar. So that is, here's this term, altar. Within it, there are two moving parts that kind of animate it or bring it back to give it its summary. So if you were to look at it and you were to split it out, there would be, here's the altar image. We possess an altar. I pull out part one. Okay, now I have half left. This part requires that I have it back in place to understand the term altar. I'm peeling it out, part A, peeling it out, part B. I put it back together and I have an altar. Those two moving parts are this. Number one. The term altar has in its purview the act of sacrificing. So at that point, you're double underlining in your mind, act. So if I use the term, we possess an altar, you think, I understand something of the act of sacrificing is involved in the term altar that I possess. My mind is keyed in. I have an altar. I possess an altar. Altar involves two things. Things and I possess them. One, the act of sacrificing is involved in the altar. Parts that animate to make one. 
second portion, in my mind now, is who? It has in its purview the victim being sacrificed. There is no sacrifice. There is no altar because no one is being sacrificed. I possess the act of sacrificing. If we were to take those two elements and apply them by his own act to my account, the actual historical evil. I have an altar. Within its purview involves the act of sacrificing. Beyond the act of his own sacrifice that I, as the once and for all, sufficient for all in the event of the cross. And these two elements within its purview that I possess, the act of Christ's self-sacrifice and the sufficiency of him who was the sacrificial lamb. I possess these two elements in the one work of the cross. In other words, I possess a real and complete atonement for my sin. Not an idea of atonement. Not a contribution toward forgiveness. Not an attempt at sacrifice. But an atonement that is real, effectual, and complete. But that then begs the question, how do I possess this altar? That's what's at stake in this sermon, both, I guess, in this one and in this one. What's at stake? How do I possess it? He has already spoken, not by foods. That is the question of how do I come to possess this altar? Another way of asking it is how does one come in this very moment, this morning, here at Redeemer, if you're hearing the preached word, in a place of unbelief? It's beginning to become clearer in your mind. The question that then has prompted you, and as a believer, hearing the preached word, yet again afresh, asking yourself and calling to mind, how have I come to possess Christ and all of his atoning benefits? How have I come to possess this altar? The answer is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is how one comes to possess the altar of complete atonement.
At this point, I do want to address just an urgency within our time in history. Perhaps we would say, uh, you know, tend to make our time in history more unique than it needs to be. Nonetheless, as we look at the landscape theologically, within and without the church, we would consider it imperative at this point, as I'm speaking to you, the church of Christ, in remembrance of the possession of the altar that you possess by faith. It is imperative that we insist, insist, not in a spirit of nastiness, but we must insist upon the alones of our confession without caveat. We cannot say that we come to know Christ by faith through grace. Too simply. And then add to it caveats. Well, we don't mean exclusively. We mean, you know, grace followed by works that prove out grace. Or observances that definitely show forth and prove our life lived. Add to it. To come to Christ, you must be one who is disciplined in order to believe. It is imperative, believers, that we rest in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without additional caveats. That is the gospel. That we have come to possess Christ. The altar, the sacrifice, and he who was sacrificed by faith alone. Force of the argument is then, hopefully, for you as we advance through the text, is made more clear to us now. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Grace, which, by the way, those foods have not benefited those devoted to them. Grace alone brings benefit. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, the tent, they have no right to eat. I want to address this issue of having and possessing no right to eat. Force of the argument is this, to return to eating foods, ceremonial observances, various Forms of legalism. It's not only wildly inappropriate for the people of God. But it is tantamount to outright denial of the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. To prove out our godliness by various forms of observances, legalistic rituals and disciplines... To somehow gain merit with God is outright denial of the sufficiency of Christ's person and work. Legalism isn't silly. It's deadly. To return to eating food in observance is an outright Denial of the sufficiency of the personal work of Christ. 
We must maintain the purity and stability of the gospel. Now, a question that I want to mine out just a little bit further with you and considering the force of the argument that it is a denial to eat. And then he says, we have an all They, them, they possess no right to eat from this, from this, but I'm sure it's really there. Is why exactly? Why don't they have just two simple answers right away of what we have already read from the book of Leviticus? Consider in your mind as he speaks, as they are offering observances, festivals, sacrifice in Leviticus 6, anything of sin offering brought in for atonement, the complete and climactic fulfillment of the day of atonement sacrifice. He is the climax, the fulfillment and the climax of the day of atonement then to be its fulfillment. Do not, does not strengthen and provide. The heart is strengthened. Number two, the second reason why throughout redemptive history, no matter where we're at, please don't be confused in the place of He is not by food observance. I eat, I am united. That Christ is received. His contract for a church struggling, walking by faith in Christ or considering going back to what I can see, but a return, a desire to go back and to somehow feel that I'm some. That's it. They possess are obsolete. The conclusion as the sole fulfillment of the law. And it is there who has done just that. They joyfully accepted the seizure of all of their property. Again, we looked at it a few weeks ago. It makes one vulnerable to being grasped and thrown in with them. How's? We don't think that we're going to be grasped, whisked away. You're with them. You're... No, they must have got grasped and locked up. Better. And to affirm him, to lay hold of him, is to be a covert believer. To lay hold and affirmably on the fence regarding Christ. As the only Redeemer, we extend grace. Those who possess Him and the of gratitude, sexually appropriate ethics, all the things, strategy, method, and persons as having any strange and diverse teachings. Those who possess that altar moves on to Verse 11, strategies, methods, and forms as having any saving value in them. Why is this happening? There is a rightful expectation, both within the first century. It might look different, does look different in the 21st century, at least for us in the West, here in America. Nonetheless, it is a rightful expectation that if we live by faith, affirming Christ and denying all others, there are two Rightful expectations that immediately merge in the text that he reminds us of. Number one, 
the rightful expectation that will arise upon our lives. Various forms and ways, but are to be present is number one, an expectation of sacrifice. An expectation of sacrifice in our own lives. Look at verse 11, he continues, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Right? We look at that in Leviticus 16. He continues the thought of outside the camp, uniting it, verse 12, to Jesus. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Outside that camp. In order to sanctify the people. Through his own blood. The rightful expectation therefore. To those of us who follow Christ. Affirming and denying. Is self-sacrifice. That verse 11 and 12 explain. Where the carcass. Again as we looked in Leviticus 16. Has no abiding value is to be burned outside the camp in a place of unholiness. That is precisely where Christ himself went in order that we might come to share in his holiness. Do you see the imagery? As those animals are done away with, their service unto us is complete. We are to remove them away to the outer court, a place of unsanctity. Burn them. The connection in verse 12 is, that's where Jesus went. That is, he himself, in the act of sacrificing, in him whom we possess as the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. He went out to the unholy, bringing to them holiness. That we might come to share in it. The implication is a bit obvious. We do well to be reminded that we find Christ. We find him. Not in various observances, legalistic rituals, foods, and festivals. We find Christ. Each one of us, by grace, find Christ in the place of personal humiliation. Through faith by Grace. That's where he went to find us. That's where we found him by grace, through faith, in the place of personal humiliation. Not only do we find him there, however, the text continues for each. Not only do we find him outside the camp, but we also follow him continually outside that camp. Therefore, 
since he suffered there, holiness. He cleansed us there through his very own blood. The gate. Let us then go to him for our life in Christ is the expectation. Experience his strength. It is a continual. His altar was for us this place of the cross where he suffered bringing holiness. Some reason. Probably pride. Each one of us. We are made strong. High, high, healthy, wise, full of energy and life. It's a call, a very bold and difficult call to leave Judaism, rendering it obsolete for you. Affirming and denying. Unholy. Why would we do that? What, 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 what energizes that grace? What? Verse 14 really is it. It's going to be all right. We are ceases on the word of God. Letting go of those things that we lay hold of so easily in legalism and the earth's advantages for ourselves, for our families. Let us, Lord.